Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Oh man, I'm going to be so late for this appointment. Why didn't I leave earlier? So stupid. Viva say there was heavy traffic. But that's not true. There's hardly any traffic at all. Wait, who's talking to me? It is I, your Volkswagen Diesel. Viva say there was heavy traffic. A deer ran across the road and was killed. I guess we could do that. Anyway, we're here. And there is nowhere to park. Park in the handicapped spot. What? Park in the handicapped spot, and when you get out of the car, walk with a pronounced limp. But I'll get a ticket. In my glove compartment, you will find a reasonable facsimile of a handicapped tag. Hang it from your mirror. You know, I don't even think you say handicapped these days. I don't care. I knew you were a diesel. I never realized you were such a weasel. Hey, that's a little poem. Okay, I'm gonna go in now. Do I look okay? You look fabulous. Thank you. Wait, hold on. You're a pathological liar, aren't you? My phone was dead when you called. I will totally read your book of poems. I'm sorry. That was my last piece of gum. I can't believe my car is such a lying sack of nuts and bolts. Today, the nose tackles your cheating car and the national selfie crisis. And now John Boehner wants him to stay at his house until things blow over. Tell him you recently had a terrible fire. Colin McEnroe. That's what I'm going to tell Boehner. Yeah, he just wants to just, like, stay in our guest bedroom because he's, I don't know, he's crying a lot. I don't want him around the house. All right, so, uh, first of all, let me tell you who's on the nose today. Maybe that's a good place to start. Tracy Wu Fastenberg uh, from the Mark Twain House. Rebecca Castellani from the world of arts and letters and knowledge and, I don't know, what world are you really from? Uh, and Collinsville. Um, and uh, Rand Richards-Cooper, uh, author, critic, uh, blogger now for Commonweal. Uh, and many other things besides. Everybody here has many other things besides. But besides what? That's the question. All right. So uh, on this, you can tell I'm a little hyped up today. I've already recorded one show with the wonderful um, Alan Boyle from Great Big C. Uh, and he's in town and you should go. That's my endorsement, but I'll give it right now. Go see him tonight at Infinity Music Hall. He's really great. Uh, but anyway, we, we're uh, doing The Nose live and I'm mildly confused. But we do have great topics today. We're going to be talking about the VW crisis or scandal uh, and the deep German shame that accompanies it. We'll also talk about two authors who kind of falsely represented themselves or may have falsely represented themselves or it, the stories are each a little bit different but also very similar in certain ways. We'll also talk about the international selfie crisis. People are getting killed taking selfies. People are bull rushing the Pope so they can take selfies with him. They are uh, one cereal company is uh, offering a free selfie spoon so you don't even need to pause. She's, Tracy Wu Festenberg is over there just shaking her head over every <laughs> single thing that I say, shaking her head. Uh, and uh, their makeup companies are even offering special or they're marketing special makeup that's selfie friendly. So we're obviously in the midst of something very, very bad here. Um, if we have time, we'll talk about the fact that happy birthday is passed into the public domain. Why wasn't it already in the public domain? We probably won't have time for that. We've got so much to talk about. So let's begin at the beginning with your line 
lying, cheating Volkswagen. Uh, and it's not every Volkswagen, obviously, but uh, certain Volkswagen diesels. Uh, well, you already know this story. Basically, they've been rigged up to pass emissions tests. Uh, they've been rigged up so that their sensors know when, a, when an emissions test is probably happening. And so at that point, uh, they give off a very different reading. And it seemed at first as though this were maybe a mildly limited thing. Now it's 11 million vehicles. <laughs> 11 million, million vehicles. Tracy, we have faster book. shaking your head again. All right. You have to stop shaking your head. And so why are you shaking your head about this one? I think because, you know, we've heard a lot of recalls over the years and people get really upset about them and different companies have to do their damage control. But it's the knowledge of it, the intentional programming to circumvent the test that really drives me bananas. It's the epitome of greed, you know, being able to market this environmentally friendly car to a specific mindset population that's really cognizant of that and then swindling them. Um, I think the only redeeming thing is, is that the CEO did resign in short order. It didn't take, you know, lots of pressure or excuses or anything like that. And it, it's just it resonates like the the gentleman at the peanut company down in Georgia who knowingly allowed salmonella tainted peanuts to go. Not that this CEO was aware. Uh, Although I, I think it is fair. So. By the way, when we get to, to Rand, he'll have to explain to us why the CEO is Professor Dr. CEO, uh, <laughs> Rand being our expert in all things Teutonic. But anyway, it does seem to me that, that you're, you're, you're onto something in the sense that I think we can sort of rank these kinds of of scandals or problems ultimately resulting in recall in, in different hierarchies of moral turpitude. So uh, the, uh, on the f- first rung of the ladder is um, is the, the defect that the company doesn't know about, right? They don't, they don't know that the Prius starts itself up and runs into a wall, whatever <laughs> Priuses were doing. They don't know that. They find it out. It's, a, it's bad news. They deal with it. The next one is they know it. They, they they realize slowly that there's a problem, but they're slow to acknowledge and deal airbags. with it, right? Yeah, airbags. So yeah, you, maybe it takes, it takes a long time for the company to really face up to the terrible problem. And during that time, they're exposing other people to risk. Okay, so that's the next rung down in this ladder to hell. And then – but Volkswagen is on the third la- rung of the ladder, right? They designed the thing in, intentionally – from the beginning, ab ovum, they designed the problem into their product, which to me, that is like a new th- – I, I can't really think of another thing that's exactly like that. There may be some other parallels, but I can't think of one. But anyway, yes. That, that's where the head shaking comes that's from. Shaking. It's just the, the anchor. So uh, we're saving Rand for uh, the anchor on this because he's going to walk us into the deep German heart of this scandal. <laughs> but before we get there, uh, Rebecca, um, you know, uh, long after I've passed from this earth, uh, people your age will have to inhabit it. And we're really seeing another new thing here, I think, which is we're seeing the beginning of machines that think but not in a way that makes them easily fact-checkable, right? This this stupid car was able to quote-unquote think. It was able to know, I guess that's in quotes too, um, that it was being tested and then behave differently as a result of it. But that's not something that you, the owner of that car, would easily know. And you're going to have to live in this world where the machines know things that they don't tell us. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, I mean, I feel this way every time I go on the Internet and it's finishing my sentences for me. And, you know, we encounter this every day to some scale. What worries me about this is the more research I did into it, the more it seems that this is just one example that has been discovered. And this tends to be a pretty open secret in the industry that this is happening. And especially in Europe where they have much you know, less stringent emissions testing. Um, I don't really know how we move forward other than using this as an example and having sanctions on cars that, 
everyone has got to be aware that there is technology going on that is advanced and of the car's own agency. Um, I don't know if this is going to bottom out and, you know, release where we can't have this occur anymore. But I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's rather terrifying. Um, it is terrifying. And, and it's, um, yeah, I think part of this is, and there have been so many pieces written, but one of the pieces I read was about proprietary code. And the whole notion of proprietary code is they don't have to tell you yeah. what the thing is that's in there that's doing whatever it's doing. And in fact, they enjoy a certain level of legal protection about that because obviously it's proprietary. They don't want anybody to know how the elevator does what it does or how the car does what it does, the, except that, you, you, yeah, what? The local effects of these emissions are tangible. I mean, it can cause lung cancer. It can cause asthma. It is causing smog fields. So it's not the same problem as the greenhouse gases that you're getting from non-diesel cars. But from these diesel cars, you can have physical health issues. So I think there's going to be some sort of, I hope, um, in the case of the GM suit, they settled for $900 million, um, and there were no criminal charges pressed in the case of those ignition switches that killed 127 people. So I think that there might have to be criminal charges pressed in this case against the people that directly installed the software as opposed just to the resignation of the CEO. Well, the re- remediation is going to be complicated, too, because if your air- airbag, back to Tracy's example, doesn't work, you go get your airbag fixed because right. you don't want to die because the airbag doesn't work. To get this fixed, you've got to care about the environment, be right. willing to give up your car for a day or however long it takes to, fi- to fix that, uh, and probably enjoy somewhat decreased mileage and engine performance and stuff like that. Right. So they're probably going to have to pay people to actually go and get this fixed. So Rin, okay, um, this is also just a story about Germany. Germany, of course, uh, as you explained to us on a previous show, uh, has gone through a long period of of wearing a, of a national hair shirt and just dealing with the, the terrible uh, after effects of World War II and the the, the twisting of the German story uh, into that. But then, you know, lately it's been trying to rise above all that, maybe be even kind of a leader among European nations in uh, in controlling climate change, uh, maybe be a leader among German nations in taking in Syrian refugees. And then this happens. Right. Um you know, I, I would just go back for a moment to your categories of sort of the degrees of, uh, of depravity in these various scandals. Something that, uh, you know, I would place closer to hell those automobile scandals in which there was a problem that causes loss of life mm-hmm. and the company knows it and they know it for a long time, but they decide that it's going to be more painful for them to fix it than to deal with the mop-up uh, of, of, of litigation, including the loss of life. What's perhaps attractive and even enjoyable about this scandal is its brazenness combined with the fact that, well, people aren't getting killed because of this. You're able to just imagine – Maybe you know, slowly killed. Well, well, there's that. I mean if, if, if you sort of you know, carbon tax it all in, then it is arguably more villainous. But like you don't have to deal with pictures of cars that crashed on the side of the road. What you have is a, a small – or a cabal of villainous <laughs> Germans um, who who get together and say, in effect, yeah, yeah, die, die blöden Amerikaner, die werden das nie kapieren, die stupid Americans, they'll never know that we are cheating. And and so there's the outrage that we feel at that um, is in some ways cathartic and even in, enjoyable. We're used to the endless recalls that are based on shoddy engineering uh, uh, oversights. That, that's dreary and dismal. Here we actually have evil. Uh, and, and there's something that's the, the, the morally enjoyable about the black and whiteness of it. But I'll say, I'll say one more thing. 
what's remarkable and startling about this is on every single point, I mean, Germany is one of the least corrupt countries in the world. That, that, there's those annual reports that list cor- po- political and, and governmental corruption. Germany's way near there's like Denmark and then Germany. Germany is one of the most, as you pointed out, Colin, environmentally friendly countries in the world. They decide overnight that they're going to get rid of nuclear power. It's 23 percent of their country's energy <laughs> supply. Boom, they do it. Um, they lead the way in, 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 in green technologies. Um, and also, I know from having lived in Germany for a long time, you know, Germans on an in, have an almost fanatical uh, adherence personally to the idea of the categorical imperative. People cheat less than we do. Like if you're stuck in traffic, you know, I just remember this, and there's, this, there's the breakdown lane. Nobody goes over there. <laughs> Nobody goes over in the breakdown. And if they do, <laughs> you know, they're in serious trouble. But I wanted to stop you there because one thing that you've told me, I, maybe it's categories of cheating because you did tell me at one point that a, a, a person very close to you expected <laughs> you to help her cheat on a test, right? That's correct. Yeah. And if they do cheat, uh, as in that case, there's massive cheating like on university exams. But it's not hidden cheating for personal gain. It's solidarity with an <laughs> oppressed class. <laughs> yeah, the only reason we are being given these tests is that they don't want to give us employment later on. So we are resisting the test in a group solidarity effort. So, um, you know, so there Moralistic are, cheating. Like, right, moralistic <laughs> cheating. And you know, the other aspect of it that we talked about a little bit, Colin, is that if you go into German news sites now, you see like the – you love the concept of schadenfreude, mm. the German concept of, of taking pleasure in, in someone else's pain. Well, Germans are capable of directing a massive amount of schadenfreude at themselves. Mm. So you would call it selbst schadenfreude, schadenfreude directed at your own miseries. And there's a great deal of that going on. You, you saw the headline that I sent you from the from the Frankfurt newspaper. Yeah, was, well, first of all, what do they call this? The uh, the Abgas scandal. It's called the Abgas scandal, the the exhaust scandal. <laughs> and and Germans are always aware, for the reasons of the national hair shirt that you mentioned, they're always painfully aware that the rest of the world is looking. Mm-hmm. And so when they do something to sort of spoil that picture for the rest of the world, then then there's this immense piling on action, uh, piling onto you know themselves. Look look how now we are now the ugly Germany. The the headline in the Frankfurter Rundschau was was uh, uh, schmutziges Deutschland, filthy Germany. <laughs> This is the kind of thing that, yeah, you get – if you do it in the U.S., they say you're unpatriotic. But right. um, So it seems to me, um, Tracy, that we have um, – we've sort of alluded to this already. This is sort of an unusual situation where, in fact, there's this huge moral onus that now lies upon um, Germany to a certain degree. And the government's a little bit involved in the company anyway and the company itself. But then there's this other moral onus. If you own one of these cars – and I've actually already heard one conversation take place within my earshot where somebody who does own one of these cars was trying to decide whether it was worth it to get it all fixed. Um, and, and, and you just – I mean this is unusual, right? You know, I mean, I mean do we have to like sort of distrust all of our friends who own diesel Volkswagens? And, and I'm going to start giving them all the side eye I think or, or and ask them, you know, so what have you been doing the past couple of weeks? Has your car been, been yours? You know, has it been in your possession? Let me see your papers. Exactly. Let me see your papers. Exactly. You, you had the work done. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, you know, like other VW owners that don't have diesel, they're going to have to start getting the bumper stickers that say, not diesel, I swear. Like mine. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I would like to also make note that Rand rode his bike 
here. My German bike. My German bike. German so who, bike who knows here. what that bike is doing? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, we have a tweet from Stephen. Tell those geeky TDI drivers to stop complaining. Their cheating cars have given them some much-needed street cred. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is, there is sort of an insufferability about, you know, I mean, people who think their cars are morally superior to other cars. And I guess these cars just got taken down uh, a notch. So that brings a uh, question up for you, Rebecca, and your generation. I mean, for a long time, people wouldn't buy Volkswagens because of their uh, – because the company was essentially started by the Nazis uh, and because, in fact, the people associated them with all the Nazi evils. And I'd say, you know, probably for 90 percent of the population, the company has probably lived that down. But now they've got this whole other thing. Like, would you – I don't know what you would even drive now, but would you buy a Volkswagen after this? Well, it's interesting you ask. Last week or probably two weeks ago, I, in a very minor accident, totaled my Subaru. Um, they're designed to crunch, so it was going all of 10 miles an hour. The car pancaked. No airbags go off, but the car is totaled. And my first thought was I've always wanted a Volkswagen because they have, you know, a great reputation for engineering and – sturdy stability, all this stuff. And I had found a nice one at the Canton Auto Exchange. I was going to go look at it, and this story broke. And no, I'd, I don't feel as though I want to support a company that is so willfully lied to the public about something like this. Well, they, mean, won't, they won't make any money if you buy it at the Canton Auto Exchange. No, that's true. But it's the, you know, it's the stigma. Great, great price now. Too. I, yeah, I, right. Well, I mean, that's, that's in the whole other side of it. But I mean, their stock has plummeted. So I thought maybe I'd buy a low and see what happens. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, I don't think I would at this point, just for the principle of the matter. Yeah, and you do have a Volkswagen. I do. It's not a diesel, but my brother-in-law has a Volkswagen diesel, and he is the kind of person who bought it precisely for that reason. He likes diesel, and uh, and you know this was built precisely, specifically as a car that that has not diesel that has that has power and pickup, but doesn't damage the environment. Um, and uh, you know, so I I talked to him today. I said, so you know, how how are you doing, and how's your pollution spewing vehicle? And you know, he, he didn't really laugh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, weren't these weren't these cars sort of premiumly priced, also for for that very reason? So. I wouldn't be laughing either if I were him. Well, uh, we're going to wrap this up and move on to another topic. But I do want to say that one thing I shared uh, with our panel was a sermon that was sent to me by, uh, by Woody, oh, Woody Edens, who's the pastor of Simsbury United Methodist Church. So I don't want to like do spoilers for some guy's sermon that's being delivered on Sunday. So I, I But I will say that he uh, has had for four years a manual six-speed uh, Volkswagen diesel. Uh, with phenomenal mileage. He could get better than 50 miles per gallon on the highway. Well, guess what? And so he's wondering, do I trade it in for something new, move on with my life, and let someone else deal with the problem? Uh, I won't tell you what he decides. Uh, like all ministers giving sermons, he just manages to steer this Volkswagen right into God and Jesus and uh, let them kind of sort it all out. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil the last line for members of the Simsbury Methodist Church. May your relationship with God continue to grow and flourish. And if you know anyone who would like to buy a VW diesel, let me know. Uh, so, so, Rebecca, the opportunity is yeah, there right. for you. All Got right. options. All right. So if you want to sell uh, Rebecca Castellani your car, give us a call. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can also at uh, 860 You can tell my mind isn't working exactly right right now. Uh, you can also tweet us. Uh, at WNPR Colin. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back, talk about the national, international, really, selfie crisis, and also authors who lie about who they are. All 
All right. Uh, the next segment is called uh, Why Don't I Just Claim to Be Colin Wu Fastenberg? Uh, there's uh, two, <laughs> Rand shared with us, the, the, I think this idea originally with Rand, uh, sort of two stories that are mildly related. One of them involves uh, um, uh, an essay for Harper's Magazine where a critic named Art Winslow reading an obscure novel called Cow Country, written under the pen name Adrian Jones Pearson, concluded based on not scanty evidence, but not very solid evidence, that it might have been written by Thomas Pynchon, uh, first of all, quadrupling the sales of Cow Country almost immediately, uh, and uh, also touching off a wild wave of speculation. And it does turn out that whether it's written by Thomas Pynchon or not, it's not written by this other person, Adrian Jones Pearson, because he doesn't exist. Uh, this actually is a pseudonym. It's somebody else's pseudonym, and uh, but maybe not Pynchon's. Uh, so, and, and then linked to that, uh, was the 2015 edition of the Best American Poetry. Uh, there's a poem written by Yi Fen Chao, uh, which is a female-sounding pen name for, in fact, a male non-Asian person named Michael Derrick Hudson uh, from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, he said his poem has been, after a poem of mine has been rejected a multitude of times under my real name, uh, I put Yi Fen's name on it and sent it out again. Um, and this strategy has worked really well for him. Uh, he has um, placed more than one poem uh, that way. <laughs> now, I'm actually somebody who at one point claimed to be Michiko Kakutani, so I don't have a leg to stand on uh, here. But uh, but we'll start with this this second part of that. First of all, it will be interesting to see whether we can link these two things at all. I, I think Rebecca thinks she, that she can. But uh, Tracy Ruth Ashtonberg, uh, you get to shake your head about this too. <laughs> Uh, I get to very personally shake my head about this as an Asian female. Um, I, I think the fact that he went ahead and thought that this was an effective way to get himself published, it it's so insulting um, to, to have that assumption that, well, you know, if I have a, a female minority name, then of course I'm going to be given preference. I think what actually disturbs me more is that, well, there's sort of some statistics backing him on this um, that, that, you know— it got more attention. Um, I'm wondering how specific those, that is to poetry, though. In other words, I, I, I mean, well, we'll, we, there's no, I mean, to, to do a study of this would be so perverse that we wouldn't want to do it. But, I mean, <laughs> you, you sort of wonder whether he's plucking a, a particular string that exists maybe in two or three fields as opposed to this kind of widespread notion that, you know. I don't know. You get your car fixed faster. Uh, oh, I you definitely know. don't. But. No, you don't. So, <laughs> so it's, it only works in certain places if it works at all. Right. But but at the same time, you know, I don't as an Asian female want to think that anything has been given to me simply because of my ethnicity or my gender. Um, so, so it's disturbing to me in that respect. But I, I just find it incredibly insulting. I do love that the internet trolls have eviscerated this guy um, in, in much more eloquent and insulting terms than I could ever come up with. And I did send this article after it came out, you know, amongst our emails to, to a couple of friends who, who are Asian American. And I got four WTFs, you know, and that was all I got from four different people. And I, it's just so mind-boggling that he – the audacity to be able to just – just multiple times, not even I want to do a social experiment. It's I want to do this for personal gain. Um, and I think that's what's really disturbing about it. And he seems utterly unapologetic also. Exactly. Well, although, I mean, first of all, I wanted to say that uh, in blind testing, uh, we've established that Tracy Wu Fastenberg has earned her place here on the news. <laughs> uh, it's not – it's got nothing to do uh, – I was going to have that conversation offline yeah, with yeah. you, you know. Uh, no, absolutely. But, OK, so – 
So, Rebecca, for personal gain is an interesting concept because most people who write poetry want to be recognized for their poetry, right? They want to yeah. – I mean who wants to get a po- poem published under this fake identity like at that point? And you don't make any money from poetry, right? I mean we sort of exactly. know that. So, so there's something else going on, something else about the fungibility of, of identity. I mean it's sort of difficult even to locate where the personal gain is here. Well, I think the difference between these two situations is very much bound up in the authorial perspective. So in the case of this poem, it was because the author couldn't get the poem published using his white man from Fort Wayne, Indiana name. So he chose a name that he believed would be more lucrative for him versus what's happening with the Pearson novel, which Pearson went, I mean, whoever Pearson really is, when confronted with this pension idea, responded like any contemporary novelist, I'm a manufactured construct I have aspired to make my authorial persona as transparently false as possible. So what he's doing is more aligning with the tradition of literary persona that extends back, in my mind, as far as John Keats, who first wrote that for art to be truly great, it has to transcend the artist. Art has got to be bigger than the artist. T.S. Eliot was a great champion of this. He, Though he published under his name, each poem he published held a different authorial identity. Proofrock sounds like a different art author than Gerontion, which sounds like a different author than The Wasteland. We see this throughout literature, but it's mostly been used as a construct in order to loud the art above the artist, the individual trappings of ego, diminish those things in favor of letting the art speak for itself. But why can't Michael Derrick Hudson, the next time Tracy Wu Fastenberg's flaming him on Gawker or something, <laughs> say, well, that's what I'm really essentially doing too, right? I'm slipping the surly bonds of, uh, you know, of reality. Uh, I am creating this other author uh, that's bigger than me or my art or my art or whatever it was, you just the Keats thing. <laughs> you know, why can't he use that as his defense too? Because he's taking it from a position of a minority, you know, not only an Asian name but a female name for some misguided reason that this is going to get him published more. Well, of course, George Sand would might be an example of uh, no, who who am I thinking? George George Eliot, right? George Eliot, yeah. That's that's the example I want. So that's there's a woman thinking I'm not going to get published unless I'm a man. Writing as a man, you get that the Bronte sisters originally published. uh, Charlotte Bronte publishes Kerr Bell. I mean, there's. It abounds in the literary history of women needing to use a male pseudonym because of oppression and stigma. And this man is flipping that right on its head. It's it's and his answer, this whole, well, woe is me, I got rejected forty times. I mean, that's just to use the current buzzword, mansplaining. I mean, he <laughs> he just you know his work couldn't cut it, so he figured I'm going to piggyback on an Asian female name with the hopes that that's going to garner my work more attention. And I don't, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think he was trying to transcend, transcend no. any sort of bonds. <laughs> He's a genealogist from for a local library, you know, and, and that's a great thing, but he's not some sort of really established author or artist that has to sort of be able to take on another persona in order to explore some other voice or genre. He's... And this turns out that he's actually yeah. Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah, you know, right. That <laughs> well, could happen. So, so Rand Cooper, are we all Volkswagens now? Uh, I mean, everybody just lies about everything. You know, clearly, one way to grapple with this is to try to imagine and think about what he, what his purposes were from his point of view, and then to get much larger and and look at other aspects of this. Clearly, he thought he was tweaking what he sees as a system of literary affirmative action. Now, from his point of view, 
he can trot out because apparently he's like a freakishly meticulous, you know, he submits to a bazillion places and writes everything down. So I submitted this poem 40 times under my name and nine times under Yi Fen Chao. Uh, and last time I submitted this other poem 72 times under my name and only five times under Yi Fen Chao before it got accepted. So you see, I, I've proved something. Well, What's interesting about that, uh, among other things, Sherman Alexie, who was the editor of this collection, Best American Poetry, came quickly under a great deal of pressure to toss this poem. Interestingly, he decided not to. And he wrote an essay explaining why he didn't. And I, when I came to that essay, I kind of thought he was going to say, you know what? Ultimately, I just loved this poem. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to toss it because ultimately I don't care who wrote it. Yeah. That's not what he said. And uh, in a way, this guy, I think, insofar as he thought he was tweaking this system of affirmative action, he wanted to suggest implicitly that ideally what this is about should only be my work, my poem, the artifact, and, and how it is assessed on its own merits. Well, Sherman Alexis said, you know what, honestly, one of my purposes in putting this anthology together was to, cre- was to present and create a diversity of range among, um, among, among, my, among the authors. And yeah, that contributed to – I, I like the poem, but that also contributed to my liking it. And I'm not going to go back on that now because honestly, point two, if I do, I'm now going to catch so much flack from uh, people who represent a sort of cultural reactionary. And, and I don't even want to deal with all that. So that presents – a somewhat murky picture that doesn't entirely refute what this guy was saying, you know, in the first place. Well, I mean, in a way, I mean, maybe I'm forcing a comparison, but maybe it almost, from his point, from the author's point of view, the poet's point of view, is it a little bit like the cynicism that your German friends have about the testing system? In other words, I mean, this author sort of saying, well, this, there's something wrong with this system. Um, and so it's, there's nothing wrong with me trying to game it. Yes, I, I think that is his. I think that clearly is his attitude. Um, but then, you know, what I would say in response to that, among other things, there are a number of things to say. First of all, it's impossible to have this conversation without a sort of shadow reality behind it, and that is non-literary. And that is, you know, we know you've, you've seen these studies in which, for instance, um, people apply for jobs with uh, uh, resumes, and they're identical resumes, but then they put. You know, one they, they, they top them with eth- one name that sounds white mm-hmm. and another that sounds African-American. And you see that over and over and over again, the white applicant is given preference. And the person with exactly the same resume with a different sounding name, oh, doesn't get the interview, doesn't get the job. So there's this massive background reality in which people have been uh, disenfranchised, not favored, not privileged – And in literary terms, Colin, to pick up on the first thing you said was, I would have to wonder, does this, even if this system, even if this like minor sort of action is taking place on the far periphery of literature, would it be true of like mega best-selling novels that make enormous amounts of money and win huge readerships for writers that, um, oh, 
Asian American writers are being favored over white male writers. I highly, highly doubt that. Well, we have an email from Josh saying, I'm interested in the panel's take on the example of William Leesteet Moon, the pen name of renowned author William Trogdon. He used his nom de plume to exaggerate his Native American roots and was the subject of most con- much controversy for this. At the same time, the message of his writing was one of tolerance and taking the perspective of others. So, uh, you know, I mean, you worked at the Mark Twain house. Um, you know, I don't his name either. Um, it's hard to know what the rules are, right? I mean, it, it, there's something about this that kicks a tripwire for you, Tracy, uh, because, in fact, this guy is just imputing uh, a whole bunch of things that, that, that are noxious to you. Um, but it's also – it's not clear to me that the rule book's ever been drawn up about what you can and can't do. We know that, that authors can take pen names. They, as Rebecca said, they do. Um, the question is how far can you push that before you break – a rule, and if there's rules, like where are they written down? How does anybody know? You know, I think it's sort of within your your own moral code. You know, I think Rand had a great example of you know in the greater society with the two resumes. You know, so there is evidence that minority candidates for a job, for a poetry submission, whatever it may be, maybe haven't been given the same treatment, uh, the same fair treatment. And I think what makes this a little more noxious to me is the fact that he's taking advantage of this consciousness about this unfair treatment and using it to his advantage when traditionally in many situations a white male has been given preference in you know for employment, for um, possibly a home loan, whatever it is. And I think that's what really burns me. If he were doing it because – he was trying to explore a different voice, a different perspective. Um, I'm not sure why he would choose an Asian female perspective, but okay, perhaps he has great insight into that. Um, but although his poem has nothing to has do nothing, and with, that with and that's Asian part of it is that it it doesn't have these undertones, um, you know, that where he's really looking to explore it. He's using this particular name for gain. And I know it's it may not be, you know, financial gain. He's not making money, but there's that self-satisfaction of, oh hey, my poem is in print. It wouldn't have gotten there if he didn't. But like, use if he this had name. engaged themes that we could call of say Asian heritage, tradition, ethnicity, we probably would be vilifying him for cultural appropriation. More. And, and so. what, what complicates this is that ultimately as readers, what we have to go on is the text that's in front of us, mm-hmm. whether it's persuasive or not. Years ago I wrote a story, it was in the Atlantic, uh, it was in Harper's and it was written from the point of view of an African-American, actually an African in America. And I had this long back and forth with the editor. We edited the piece. And only then did he semi-casually ask me, oh, by the way, he didn't know who I was. By the way, are you, are you African-American? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm a white guy. He said, OK, all right. And um, what, what's, what's interesting you know, to me, when this came out, I was teaching Amherst College, and a, a colleague there came up and said something sort of ambiguous to me. He said, oh, I saw that story in the Atlantic. Very audacious of you, very audacious to take that point of view. And I wasn't sure whether I was being praised or sort of reamed out for a kind of a, a, appropriation. Now, w- we tend to increasingly in the literary culture that we live in identify – want to identify a certain kind of authenticity in the connection between writer, past, ethnicity, self, and subject. And that is a very interesting terrain to, to wander into and with, with all sorts of red flags and, and, and contradictions in there. So, Rebecca, you're going to get the last word on this uh, because you've – you're, you're highly educated about it. Uh, but I just want to say that you know, the, the, this, what he just described to me is the way the authorial 
and, and fictional and poetry writing terrain is a little bit different from the life terrain. Some of the stuff that Tracy's talking about, you know, where resumes are handled differently. And the, the flip side of that is minority set-aside contracts, which are won by companies that have, you know, an African-American or Latino front person, that they're basically, you know, cabals of white people kind of backing that. I mean, the minute we started playing these games, it, it, it meant that, just like Volkswagens, people were going to start cheating at these games. But there's a way in which writing... A lot of writing is intentional lying, right? A lot of writing is the intentional construction of an artificial world. So how do we walk back from there to reality with our, with our principles intact? The distinction in my mind is very clear. Um, I think that if you are playing this game of masks in order to conceal your identity for the purpose of the art, that is different, a completely different thing from changing your identity – to appropriate something you believe is going to bring more success to you, the artist. So I think that if you're undertaking a persona to do something for your art that you couldn't do with your normal name. Which, is, is, the, which is the argument being used by the guy who isn't Thomas yes, Pynchon but also isn't Adrian Pearson. Exactly. That's, that's Pearson's argument. That's the usual literal literary formula for persona. This situation with this white guy from Fort Wayne is solely, and he admits to it, you know, if he'd, he could have been smart about it and say, no, I was doing this for a statement, you know, to write a poem under an Asian name without any Chinese. I mean, Sherman Alexie said he wasn't fooled by its Chinese nest because it contained nothing that I recognize as inherently Chinese. So if he was doing that as a statement, he could have been smarter about it, but he blatantly admitted it was because he couldn't get it published under his name. That's cultural appropriation bordering on racism as opposed to what Pearson was doing was writing a book without using his name to see if anyone would pick up a no-name novel. It's the same reason you get anyone using a pseudonym. J.K. Rowling published under Robert Galbraith because she wanted to tap into a different audience that wasn't Harry Potter because she didn't do well when she published A Casual Vacancy under J.K. Rowling. I mean, we see this time and time again. Well, Joyce Carol Oates has used pseudonyms partly because there's kind of a knock against her that she writes too much, too. All right, we have to move on to another topic. We don't have a lot of time, but we need at least a quick round of of Tracy Wu Fastenberg-style head shaking uh, (laughs) about selfies. Okay, so so, (laughs) selfies kind of, I mean, they sort of seem in some ways like potentially even a new art form. And, you know, if you believe that Kim Kardashian is an artist, uh, she's, you know, she's published a book. uh, Entire book of them. (laughs) But... But it is – it's a new form, right? It's, a, it's not as new as it used to be, but it's a new form and it's a thing that – it is maybe the most prevalent new form of self-expression that I can imagine over the last five to seven years. Except that now we might say this party's out of control, right? So you've got people bull rushing the pope. So the pope looking a little bit perplexed is appearing in all kinds of people's selfies. People are dying. People are getting taking, run over by bulls. Yeah, people <laughs> are getting run over by bulls. Uh, and, and the selfie seems, if anything, a little over ever present. Um, so I don't know which which aspect of this makes you do the hardest and uh, potentially most neck injuring head shaking. <laughs> I think the fact that you know social media right there makes us incredibly self centered. You know we're we're creating a persona of ourselves online for the public or our friends. However, we have our little profile set up to be. You know this is my life. This is how I want to be perceived. And I think you know it, it gets to the point where we care so much about that. And I, I look at. Younger folks that I've gotten to know um, where they're like, well, I want to post this one, but I need to post, you know, I need to take seven more in case, you know, this one doesn't look right. And I'm just like, guys, it, it's just you, you know, and that's okay. You as you are is is wonderful. And I think that we're sort of creating this idea that, you know, we can edit ourselves constantly. 
Um, but it's also the, I need to prove that I did this. I need to prove that I was here. I need to get run over by a bull so I can prove that I was here. And um, it's, it's gotten to a point where I think the headline of one of the articles was, um, you know, there, more people die from selfies than shark attacks. Mm. And I just sat there going, what sort of idiots are we? Is this evolution at its best, really? You know, is Darwinism rearing its head in this sort of way? And, oh, gosh, what have we come to? And, and so the head shaking begins. Um, I like, I like the, the, the editing of oneself as a nice linkage to our previous topic <laughs> in a way, right? Because that's about editing yourself uh, also. So, uh, Rebecca Castellani, once again, to make you this torchbearer for your generation – um, first of all, I mean, I assume you take selfies, right? So I actually can say in full honesty that I have never not, taken one. Well, I've probably taken one. I can't say I've never taken any, but I find it one of the most narcissistic facets of our society. And if I have to go through my Instagram feed and see one more picture of someone's stupid face in front of some stupid ice cream cone they've eaten, <laughs> I'm going to shake my head till it falls off. So, no, I am not a fan of the selfie. I think it's self indulgent, I think often it's gratuitous and. I really – I've been living in Scotland for the last year in, in my travels. I can't tell you how disappointing it is to see people standing in front of – you know, in, in standing in front of the Eiffel Tower and they're more concerned with getting their face in focus than taking a picture of the object behind them. Which the Eiffel Tower never looks that good from Scotland anyway. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I did some, some globe trotting. I, I mean the other thing that had me in stitches the whole time is it used to be when you were in – I was in Florence when I was – Gosh, probably about 13, and I was in Florence this year. And it used to be that the street vendors were hawking umbrellas. They were hawking maps. Now it's only selfie sticks. That's the only thing that they're bugging you with is selfie sticks. And Uh, if one more person came up to me in Italian and asked me if I wanted a selfie stick, I was going to lose my It was horrible. Well, they uh, you know, developing a selfie stick umbrella, uh, we might actually have something there. Something that would keep the rain off you and allow you to take selfies. But it's not going to top. The selfie stick spoon. The selfie stick spoon. The selfie stick spoon. Wait, how does that work? The it's selfie a, stick spoon? It's a spoon attached to the bottom of a selfie stick. So while you're dipping into your cereal, the spoon extends and you attach your phone to it so you can take photograph. Oh, okay. I thought it would take a picture of the cereal going into your mouth. Well, will. Oh, will. that's going to be the next step. That too. Esophageal selfie stick. How about the elementary, the elementary uh, or esophageal selfie stick? Yes, exactly. So, Rian, I know that you've never taken a selfie. I just know that. I know, <sighs> and you never will. And I, I have to say, I never have either. We have kind of a lot of selfie versions here. We should. Um, and and I, I will say that I had a moral quandary moment. And I was, it was about a year and a half ago. I was in Montreal. I just bought the new Leonard Cohen CD for my significant other. And then I realized I was on the street where he lived in Montreal. And I thought, maybe I'll take a selfie of myself <laughs> with the street sign and the Leonard Cohen CD because that's like here I am on the street holding the CD. And then I realized – then I would be a person who had taken a selfie. <laughs> okay, you know, here's my take on this. I think you should have gone a little bit more, a little bit easier on yourself. This is a question of, of degree. If you'd taken that selfie, um, it's it's really no different in in an isolated incident from having someone take your picture. Um, so what for me becomes problematic is when this becomes not just this or that discrete desire of discrete ETE moment in which you you want to preserve something that's happening, but rather becomes a constant uh, and an, an obsessive uh, uh, practice. Now, there was a guy a number of years ago, I remember reading this, I was fascinated, who decided he was going to write, he was going to keep a record of everything that he did in his life. He was a writer. You know, he had, what's that disease where, you know, it's like a, a grapho 
mania or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but of course, this action took over his life so that eventually he was writing about only about the fact that he was writing about his life. <laughs> and it crowded out the actual living of his life. Mm-hmm. Any device, any technology has captured us at the moment when it becomes an impediment to living your life rather than the sort of something that, that assists you in, in doing what we all, after all, want to do, recording some things for posterity, our own posterity, because absent that, life goes by in this disappearing stream of events that we forget. So the selfie kept to a reasonable limitation, I think, you know, would be great. But there's no sign that anyone keeps any of these devices to a reasonable limit. That's my entire uh, animus against it. I, I will fully admit that, I, you know, when I'm sitting home with my daughter and there's a very adorable moment or something, you know, I'll take a picture of us. I have taken a selfie, but usually there's somebody else. I don't think That's I've ever taken different. one of just myself. I'll have to think back. Not make myself a liar or a cheat. (laughs) The selfie and the self-portrait. They're sort of different things. I think that they are incredibly different. As long as the Pope is not taking a selfie, we're still okay. We're still okay. He he may pick up some bad habits while he's here. We've got to take a break, so we'll have time for endorsements on the other side. The Volkswagen says it took a selfie with the Pope. Should I believe him? Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Tucker Ives. Our intern is Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Thomas Pinchon. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff using a selfie spoon, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday show, the scramble looks at the post-Boehner landscape and wonders how the new Muppets got so screwed up. And now, back to the nose. Actually, it turns out that's not true. We're not doing the scramble on Monday. We're doing a thing about how Dante uh, can save your life or change your life. The real Dante, not some fake Dante. Uh, I have to do a couple of really quick announcements before we do endorsements. One of them is tomorrow. I'm with Ben Vereen, 3.30 at St. Joseph University. There are tickets available for this. You go to USJ. Dot edu, uh, and it's sort of a conversation with Ben Vereen. I'm going to get him to sing one song a cappella. You're going to hear stories. Uh, he's had a, an exciting life, but also a very tragic life at times. So anyway, there's that. October 7th, we're going to do something at Watkinson School, part of the Freshly Squeezed series about whether college education, four years of college education, is worth it for everybody. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but so is $240,000 if you're really not that interested in Dante. So uh, those are two things we want you to know about. Uh, I guess I'll save uh, the book club that Rand and I and two other people are doing for another time. We'll do uh, instead endorsements right now. Rand, you go first. A film that may be around for one weekend. If it just left, just add it to your Netflix list. It's a German movie. That's why I'm mentioning it called Phoenix. And it's about a uh, a German-Jewish singer, woman, who survives Auschwitz. And it's set in Berlin right after the war. And she is looking for her husband, a non-Jewish German, who may or may not have betrayed her to the Nazis in the first place. What's interesting about it is it, it's, it's kind of a film noir, so it uses some of the, the, the formal uh, touches of film noir to apply it to the, the moral shadows of the Holocaust. It's a terrific movie, Phoenix. All right, no Volkswagens were harmed in making that movie. Rebecca Castellani. I got two quick ones. Um, Lena Dunham and Jenny Koners. Uh, Online magazine Lenny Letter is coming out. Um, it deals with feminism, style, health, politics, friendship, and it's supposed to be uh, 
just what I need right now in, in journalism. And my uh, latest guilty binge watch pleasure, uh, Mr. Robot, USA's uh, latest installment. It is addicting. It is about a group of hackers trying to take down Evil Corp. And it'll have you hooked after one episode. There's a lot of uh, actors with large, very heavy-lidded eyes. Yes. I don't know what that's all about. But So, Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Tonight is the Mark Twain House and Museum's annual Oktoberfest event, which is tapping into Twain. There are a few tickets left. It's selling really well. But uh, you can go to marktwainhouse.org or purchase at the door if there are still tickets. Um, and also, the past couple of years, I've noticed a little pushback on fall and autumn and enjoying it, especially that whole pumpkin spice thing oh. as being just too basic or whatever. I am here to give you permission to enjoy fall. Go apple picking. Drink the cider. If you like a pumpkin spice latte, which I do, uh, go out and enjoy that. Don't don't succumb to the peer pressure to turn your back on autumn. Fall is my favorite season, but pumpkin spice lattes, not so much. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but we've had this conversation before, actually. Uh, it's an ongoing argument. All right. I'm going to quickly... Um, just say that, uh, yes, today we did spend a, a very interesting hour. You'll hear it on Thursday with Alan Doyle, who was originally with Great Big C. He's now a performance. He's now a solo act. Not a solo act, really. He's performing with a band tonight at Infinity Music Hall in Hartford. I really encourage you to go uh, hear him. He's If you loved Great Big C, everything that was great about that, he's still doing. Kind of maybe added another flourish to it. Uh, his career has expanded. He's in movies with Russell Crowe now and stuff like that. So uh, it's at Infinity Music Hall in Hartford tonight at 8 p.m. Go see Alan Doyle and his band, the beautiful Gypsies, uh, an incredible fiddle player, great guitarist. Uh, here's a song by them. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raised the roof, now we're lower in the floor. That man is bursting, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four, watch up. Three, four. I'm doing this show with you, Volkswagen. Me too. Let's get together again really soon, you beautiful, strong, intelligent creature. If you're lying about those compliments, you might as well inhale your own emissions, buddy. 